Hello, JBS viewers. I'm David Harris. Welcome to Defending Israel. And there's a very special guest here for the next 30 minutes, and that is Congressman Richie Torres, a name that I'm sure is not new to any of you. Uh, he's been quite an extraordinary friend of Israel and the Jewish people. Richie, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you. I'm going to ask you a question which you've been asked before, but I'm not sure that JBS viewers have heard your answer. But yours is an improbable story. It began in the South Bronx with a single mom. Uh, and now you're not only a member of Congress, but you're one of the champions of the Jewish people. Tell us a little bit about how you went from there to here. Uh, you know, I never thought life would take me on a journey from public housing in the Bronx to the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. Um, I was born and raised in the Bronx. I spent almost all my life in poverty. I was raised by a single mother who had to raise three of us on minimum wage, which in the 1990s was $4.25 an hour. And I consider my mother my greatest hero. Uh, when I won my primary, my congressional primary, in June of 2020, you know, I publicly said that before I was a congressman or a councilman, I'm first and foremost the son of my mother, Deborah Basilet. And I have the honor of representing the Bronx, which is full of single mothers like mine, who have struggled and suffered and sacrificed so that their children and grandchildren can have a fighting chance at the American dream. For me, the most formative experience of my life was growing up in public housing, which in New York City is so chronically underfunded that it has a capital need of $80 billion and counting. And so I lived in conditions of mold and mildew and leaks and lead without consistent heat and hot water in the winter. And my experience of slum living conditions in public housing is what inspired me to get my start as a housing organizer. And then eventually at age 24, I took the leap of faith and, and ran for public office. I had no ties to the party machine. I had no, I was not a member of a political dynasty, but I spent a whole year doing nothing but knocking on doors. I went into people's homes. I heard their stories. And in 2013, I won among nine candidates. I won a fiercely contested council race on the strength of door to door, face to face campaigning. Uh, I became uh, the youngest elected official in the city of New York. Uh, what's unusual about my story is that seven years before then, I was at the lowest point in my life. I had dropped out of college. I found myself struggling with depression, abusing substances. Uh, there were moments when I thought of taking my own life because I felt as if the world around me had collapsed. And I never thought in my wildest dreams that seven years later, I'd be the youngest elected official in America's largest city and today I would be a United States congressman. And so I feel like only in America is a story like mine possible. You know, I, I identify as, as a pragmatic and pro-Israel and, and patriotic progressive. And, and the best definition of patriotic progressivism came from Bill Clinton, who once said that there's nothing that's wrong with America that cannot be cured by what's right with America. And I see it as my mission as a public servant to harness what is best about country, what is right with our country, to correct what might be wrong. And I have that same feeling about Israel. There's nothing that's wrong with Israel uh, that cannot be cured by what's right with Israel. I want to come to that in just a moment, Richie, but because you were being so honest, 
How did you come out of that depression and that moment in life when you, as you said, considered suicide and sort of rebuild and find the fortitude to go forward and to build this extraordinary career? What were the change agents? So the, the, the greatest factor is my mother, just her unconditional love and support uh, in, in the most challenging moments of my life. And, you know, I had a mentor who stood with me at every point. Um, but, you know, I was hospitalized for depression. And uh, it was through the hospitalization that I actually finally received the treatment that I needed. And I tell people that, you know, were it not for mental health care, uh, I might not be alive, let alone a member of the United States Congress. Um, you know, every, for the past 10 years, I've been taking the same antidepressant uh, that I've taken and and it's it's been a game changer for me and a lifesaver. And so I've been open and honest about my own struggles with depression in the hopes of breaking the silence and stigma and shame that often surrounds the subject of mental health. Uh, I'm living proof of the transformative power of healthcare. Total living proof. So growing up as you did, my guess is you didn't have a lot of interaction with, with Jews. So where does that part of the story come in? First of all, Jews locally, and then secondly, um, your introduction to Israel. It's much later, and you know, given who I am and where I come from, I will admit that I'm something of an improbable and accidental Zionist because I grew up in an exclusively African-American and Latino community. Um, so I had no engagement with the Jewish community. Uh, and when I assumed office in 2014, I admittedly had no knowledge of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, no passion for the subject of Israel. Uh, and then I was invited by the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York and UJA to go on a delegation to Israel. And it was my first delegation to Israel, which was the first time I had ever traveled abroad. That was one of the most formative and transformative experiences of my life. Uh, but just as impactful as the trip itself was the lead up. When I announced that I was going on a delegation to Israel as a New York City Council member, I immediately became the target of overwhelming vitriol and hatred, the likes of which I had never seen in my life. Back in 2014, I had people accusing me of aiding and abetting apartheid and ethnic cleansing and genocide simply for the crime of even thinking about traveling to Israel. And there were pro-BDS activists who actually held a rally on the steps of City Hall, uh, specifically targeting members like me. And I remember coming across an activist who had a shirt that read Queers for Palestine. And at that point, I had done some research, and I asked the asked activist, you know, what is your opinion of Hamas? And I honestly thought she was going to tell me, well, I support Palestinian rights, but of course I condemn a terrorist organization like Hamas. And instead, she said that I support Hamas because Hamas is fighting for the liberation of the Palestinian people. Hamas is resistance to an occupying force. She said this 10 years ago. And when I heard that response, I was in a state of shock. And I had the beginnings of an epiphany. I said to myself, the fact that an LGBTQ activist could defend a terrorist organization that systematically and savagely murders LGBTQ people that would murder her, to me, was the clearest sign of the stupidity and moral bankruptcy and absurdity 
that BDS has inflicted on progressive politics. And so that was the beginning of my journey as a pro-Israel advocate. So sticking to this point, Richie, you're in a sense the worst nightmare for, I hate to call them the progressives because I don't know what's progressive about supporting regressive, genocidal, misogynistic, homophobic forces, but you're their worst nightmare. Their worst nightmare is not Sean Hannity uh, or someone on the right. You are a genuine progressive. You embody so much of what they purport to believe in, and yet you have made fighting anti-Semitism and defending Israel a genuinely progressive cause. How so? Why? Why in contradistinction to the way the others see it? Well, you know, I came to realize that one of the most influential ideas on college campuses is the idea of intersectionality, which I support in the abstract, but there's an anti-Semitic narrative of intersectionality, which holds that you cannot be both pro-Israel and progressive. And so I would go to an immigration reform rally and someone would utter the words from Mexico to Palestine. And I would ask myself, what does Mexico have to do with Palestine? I would go to a criminal justice reform rally and someone would utter the words from Ferguson to Palestine. And I would ask myself, what does Ferguson have to do with Palestine? And then over time, it became evident to me that there was a concerted effort by the BDS movement to transform every progressive cause into a delegitimation campaign against Israel. If you think of anti-Semitism as a virus, there's a sense in which an intersectionality has become the vector that has carried that virus across a wide range of progressive causes. And so I saw clearly the weaponization of intersectionality against Israel, the insidious anti-Semitism that was creeping into progressive circles. And I thought, you know, as a person of intersecting identities, you know, I can represent an alternative. You know, I can tell the world that I'm black, Latino, gay, millennial, progressive and pro-Israel, and I'm pro-Israel not despite my progressive values, but because of my progressive values, that Israel itself is a profoundly progressive enterprise. And how has this been received in the other so-called progressive circles? You, in a way, have become enemy number one for many of them, haven't you? Yeah, I'm public enemy number one for the New York City Democratic Socialist of America, uh, which held a rally glorifying the terrorism of Hamas as resistance, quote unquote resistance. And there's no subject on which I face more hate, more harassment, more death threats than on the issue of Israel. Even my family, my mother has been the target of harassment uh, because of my pro-Israel advocacy. Uh, so people are attacking me, not because of what I believe, but because of who I am that as a person of color, as a, as, a, as a gay man, I have the temerity, the audacity to be pro-Israel, and it deeply offends uh, the far left. You mentioned a moment ago the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, so let's stay with them for just a moment, yeah. Richie, because I've heard you speak on the subject before. This is the group that sent out the questionnaire to New, yes. York, uh, New York City candidates for office. Could you tell JBS viewers about that? and what this DSA actually represents? So 
I've been sounding the alarm about the Democratic Socialists of America for years. Um, you know, back in January of two, 2019, when I first ran for Congress, I publicly said I would never seek the endorsement of the DSA because the DSA supports BDS, which I consider to be an insidious form of anti-Semitism. And just like I would not associate with organizations that are racist or homophobic, I would never associate with an organization that is anti-Semitic. Uh, the anti-Semitism of the DSA became too glaring to ignore in the summer of 2020. Then the DSA sent out questionnaires to city council candidates, and it was about 15 pages. And the final page was a foreign policy section. But the foreign policy section only had two questions. Question number one, do you pledge never to travel to Israel if elected to the city council? Question number two, do you pledge to support the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel. So to be clear, no other country but Israel was mentioned. There was no other, Israel was singled out. Russia, Iran, Cuba, no other country. In the, in the democratic socialist moral universe, uh, it is permissible to travel to Russia, which invaded a sovereign nation state like Ukraine to travel to China, which has detained more than a million weaker Muslims in an act of genocide, to travel to Iran, which is the leading sponsor of terrorism in the world, to travel to North Korea, which is essentially a totalitarian state, but travel to the world's only Jewish state, that is stri strictly forbidden in the democratic socialist ethos. And for me, if that is not evidence of anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism, then I'm not sure what would be. So, Richie, a lot of the viewers um, on this show are, to say they're puzzled or baffled would be the understatement of the year at how quickly anti-Semitism seemed to surge and also how quickly many of the allies that Jews thought they had in this country vanished, missing in action. Uh, many Jews have said to me, and I'm sure to others, we played by the rules we're generally very liberal. We've reached out to other groups. We've tried to support other groups in their, in their quest. Our philanthropy has been directed to trying to help the underserved, advance social justice. What happened, they're asking. What would your answer to them be? How do we explain the last two months, especially? The, the the best explanation I can give is summed up in one word, fear. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And as far as I'm concerned, the greatest threat to liberal democracy, the greatest threat to the U.S.-Israel relationship does not come from the far right or from the far left. It comes from a center that lives in fear of the extremes. And if you live in fear, if you remain silent, in the face of extremism and anti-Semitism, then you're part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And, and you know, the Achilles heel of most elected officials is a pathological need to be loved. Um, and I have no need to be loved. Uh, uh, like I, you know, integrity matters more to me than popularity. And I'm willing to stand what I believe is right, even if it means standing alone, and even if it means facing excommunication uh, from ideological allies. Who's running the Congress now 
in effect, Richie, is it the, the center, the mainstream of the parties, or is it in fact the extremes who are increasingly driving the agenda um, and setting the tone for the discussion? Well, I'm in a Republican House, which to me has been hijacked by the far right of the Republican Party. And, and you know, there's a narrative that, that Republicans are pro-Israel and Democrats are anti-Israel. Uh, and that, to me, is a caricature of pro-Israel politics in Washington, D.C., rather than a fair characterization. And, and I would submit to you that if Hakeem Jeffries had been the speaker... And if House Democrats had the majority, you know, we would have passed a bill providing aid to Israel a long time ago without poison pills, without politicizing the issue. But the hijacking of Congress as at the hands of the extremes has rendered us ineffective at responding to the war in the Middle East affecting Israel. So let me take you to your own party for a moment, if I may. Um, sure. You voted, uh, if I recall correctly, to censure a fellow Democrat. You were one of some 20 or 22 uh, um, Democrats who voted to censure Rashida Tlaib for some of her comments. Can you take us behind the curtains on that decision by you and by other Democrats? Um, was it a difficult decision for you? Was it an easy decision? Do you think the real number were it not for fear, the word you used, would have been higher than 22? Or was that the sum total of those who actually were repelled by her comments and their inappropriateness in the House? You know, there were people who disapproved strongly of what she said and publicly condemned what she said, but nonetheless voted against censure. Uh, because for them, it's an issue of free speech. Uh, and I respect their viewpoint. Uh, I, you know, I, I respectfully disagree. I feel like if if I if I'm going to censure Marjorie Taylor Greene for trafficking in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Jewish space lasers, then surely I should condemn Rashida Tlaib for uttering a phrase from the river to the sea that calls for the destruction of Israel's Jewish state. Um, you know, I feel like we have to be careful not to politicize anti-Semitism. You know, there are those on the right who only speak out against anti-Semitism on the left. There are those on the left who only speak out against anti-Semitism on the right. And I believe strongly that we have to be consistent, that we have to speak out against anti-Semitism no matter what form it takes and no matter what ideological direction from which it comes, even if it comes from your own backyard, especially if it comes from your own backyard. I couldn't agree more that to be serious about anti-Semitism means to be swivel-headed about anti-Semitism and yeah. not to weaponize or, or instrumentalize it. But Richie- I'll make one point too. If, I, you know, if, if there had been a Republican who had called for the destruction of Puerto Rico or the Dominican Republic or Jamaica or Haiti, I would easily vote for, to censure that Republic because that to me is an act of bigotry. Uh, I think the same should be said when, when, when it comes to calling for the destruction of the world's only Jewish state. So l let, me, let me return to the subject of anti-Semitism with you. Dig deeper. Was it always there? Was it in remission? Uh, why, this, why this surge now? Uh, 
And what's the answer to it? I mean, I think of anti-Semitism as a cancer that occasionally goes into remission, but it resurfaces and it is a perpetual hatred, a perpetual scourge uh, of humanity. Um, you know, if you know, people often ask me, why are you pro-Israel? Is it because of religion? And my support for Israel has nothing to do with religion. I'm culturally not uh, uh, biblically, biblically Christian, um, but as a student of history, you know, I'm keenly aware that there has been a long and ugly history of, of violent anti-Semitism, a long and ugly history of exile and expulsions and inquisitions and pogroms and genocide and ethnic cleansing. And, and for me, the sheer persistence and virulence of anti-Semitism through millennia of human history uh, necessitates a Jewish state. It necessitates Israel as a sanctuary for the Jewish people. Um, and, and, and so my support for Israel is rooted not in religion, but in my own sense of morality and history. Which is incredibly important. But here in America, Richie, Many had allowed themselves to believe that there was something, let's call it American exceptionalism in Jewish history, that Jews had overcome that classic anti-Semitism which we had experienced both in the Muslim world and in Europe, uh, and Jews had become so mainstreamed here, and anti-Semitism had become so marginalized. So again, Jews are asking, where did this come from? Why this explosion? Why now? Why was such virulence? And where are those that we thought were our allies, many of whom have run for, for the hills? What's your answer? I see, I have a tragic view that anti-Semitism is a permanent virus that will never vanish and it will mutate. And I see anti-Zionism as the latest mutation in the DNA of anti-Semitism. Um, you know, I have friends who argue that the Holocaust could never happen again. I, I, there's no evidence that that's remotely true because human nature has not changed. Human nature remains as eminently corruptible today as it was eight decades ago. Uh, so I, I, I hope for the best, but as, as, a, as a human species, we have to prepare for the worst. We have to assume the worst about human nature because we know the depths of human evil to which we're capable of sinking. So what's gone wrong in our educational system, for example, where our marquee universities like Harvard, within a day or two of October 7th, witness more than 30 student organizations declaring not only that these were not crimes against the Jews, but that Israel perpetrated the crimes, is responsible for the crimes against Israelis and foreign nationals in Israel. Where have we gone wrong in the educational system where EQ no longer matches IQ? Both our college campuses and our social media platforms have been captured by the BDS movement. The BDS movement is the most successful propaganda movement in recent history. Um, and the BDS movement is weaponizing our own institutions to indoctrinate our own young people with a hatred not only for Israel, but for America. You know, the Osama bin Laden's letter to America went viral among Americans on TikTok. 
and I'm aware of no civilization in human history that can succeed on the strength of self-loathing. We are rotting from within at the hands of extremism amplified by our own institutions, by our own college campuses and social media platforms. And Richie, in the remaining couple of minutes, I, I wish we had more time because there's so much to discuss with you. Um, what do you see as the pathway forward for Israel um, after October the 7th? As you and I are speaking, there is a pause uh, with the hostages being released in exchange for the prisoners. Uh, but what do you think needs to happen going forward? Permanent ceasefire, as some call it? Return to war? Some third option? What's Richie Torres's view? If, 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 if Israel were to enter into a ceasefire with Hamas, the cycle of violence will never end. Hamas has made it crystal clear that October 7th was not a one-time event. There will be a second and a third and a fourth. And so I see Israel's defensive war against Hamas as a struggle for national survival. Because a repeat of October 7th is a risk that Israel cannot accept and cannot afford. Uh, and there's a double standard here. You know, no one expected the United States to enter into a ceasefire with Imperial Japan and with the Nazis when 2,400 Americans were murdered at Pearl Harbor and the Nazis declared war in the United States. No one expected the United States to enter into a ceasefire with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda when 3,000 Americans were murdered on 9-11. And so why should Israel be treated any differently than any other country on earth. You know, those who insist that Israel should forfeit the right of self-defense are holding the Jewish state to a deadly double standard that no other country, including the United States, right. would ever impose on itself. You know, in my view, there should be a, a diplomatic operation to secure the release of the hostages, with, which we've seen unfolding. There should be a humanitarian operation to bring aid to Gazans, to Palestinians in distress. And there should be a military operation to remove Hamas from power so that there is no longer a repeat of October 7th. And none of those are opposing objectives. None of them. And in the remaining seconds, Richie, I, I wish we had more time. What's your view of Iran's role in all of this and what American policy needs to be going forward? There are those who want to seek to re-enter the nuclear deal, and there are always those who are saying, look at Iran's behavior, including with Hamas, um, we have to take a different approach. What's your bottom line on Iran? Well, there are those on the hard left who view Israel as the root of all evil in the Middle East. Um, I believe that there is a root of all evil in the Middle East, but it's not Israel, it's Iran. Wherever you have a failed state, whether it's Yemen or Lebanon or Syria or Iraq or a place like Gaza, you have the tentacles of Iran. Iran is the root cause of, of widespread death and destruction in the Middle East. And if the Islamic Republic were to collapse, uh, it would be the single most transformative event for peace in the Middle East. Um, uh, so I, I, and there were people who were in denial about the depth of the malevolence of the Iranian regime, but October 7th should serve as a wake-up call. There's no doubt in my mind that Iran had a role 
you know, Iran saw distracted and divided Israel over judicial reforms. It saw distracted, divided United States without a Speaker of the House. And it saw Israel on the verge of brokering peace with Saudi Arabia and ending the Israeli-Arab conflict. Right? That was the context in which the terror attacks of October 7th were perpetrated by Hamas at the behest of Iran. Uh, and so I think we have to be clear-eyed about the nature of the Iranian threat, and we have to confront it. Richie, thank you. JBS viewers, you've just heard quite an extraordinary uh, analysis by Richie Torres, member of Congress, great friend of the Jewish people and the U.S.-Israel relationship. This is David Harris for Defending Israel. I'm Yisrael Chai.